Welcome to Navigate, the podcast that helps you safely and securely traverse the globe. Alongside travel industry experts and global travelers, we'll gather insights and advice that help you manage any pitfalls or problems that may occur while you're away from home. Our voyage of discovery starts now. Hello and welcome to Navigate. My name is Roger Cook. I'll be your host. And today we're very happy to have with us Amy Gildia, the Managing Director of TetraTech International Development, the Asia Pacific region. Amy, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks very much for inviting me, Roger. Great to be here. Amy, if you could just let everybody know a little bit about your background, the sort of work that you've done over the years, and also the work that uh, TetraTech are doing in, in the Pacific. Definitely. So I'm actually a nurse by background. That was my first career and I spent many years deep in the field working with Médecins Sans Frontières or Doctors Without Borders uh, in post-conflict and post-disaster settings, predominantly in West Africa, um, East Africa, the Middle East and the Caribbean. And so really brought those skills um, back to Australia and uh, was a good fit for Tetratech International Development stepping back into that space. Um, but taking more of a development-focused lens to the work that our teams do overseas. And currently now I'm Managing Director for our Asia-Pacific operations. So when we talk Asia-Pacific, what countries are we actually talking about? Mm, so TetraTech International Development are currently in 14 countries across the Asia-Pacific, uh, inclusive of Australia and New Zealand, but we also therefore then operate in Papua New Guinea, Indonesia, the Philippines, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, um, Fiji, Tuvalu, Nauru, Vanuatu and Tonga. Well, all throughout. And Timor. That's the 14th. And I always forget Timor. <laughs> you need very well to remember all those. <laughs> uh, what exactly, what sort of programs are Tetra Tech running? Mm. I imagine it's all varied, but. It is It is varied. So we manage a significant number of scholarship programs or Australia Awards programs on behalf of the Commonwealth Government. Uh, so we manage nine of 13 Australian funded programs in that space, which has a real focus on um, moving people uh, from country of origin to Australia to study. Um, and that also requires infrastructure, people and assets on the ground in those countries to support mobilisation to Australia. We also manage uh, a range of different basic or primary education programs, particularly across the Pacific, and uh, also uh, programs in policing and building police capability uh, and servicing um, sort of court responses to domestic and family violence in those jurisdictions. We work with the law and justice and court sector in Tonga, uh, and we also manage an impact investing program throughout the Pacific, which is a regional program working with social enterprises, getting them ready uh, for investment, which is important given the current economic recovery climate uh, as a result of COVID. How have, you know, I'm sure all those programs have been impacted by COVID. You talk about the uh, impact of investment. Has there been a reticence to go down that road and, and look at that investment given the current climate? There's certainly a, been a big shift in people's appetite for investment and, and I think that's really shifted with uh, people's understanding of economic recovery and uh, sort of the, the imperative for recovery in, in home countries. And so that um, what people are willing to invest overseas has definitely shifted and we've also seen a real shift from Sort of the current trajectory and delivery of what programs were aspiring to achieve 12 months ago, there's been a lot of talk around pivoting and pivoting uh, 
programs in sectors that you wouldn't ordinarily think might intersect with health, um, but pivoting them to provide some form of support for economic recovery and security uh, in those countries for those uh, host communities. And so, from a COVID recovery perspective, for example, we've done a lot of work in our education programs about moving um, teaching online, about um, supporting through radio programs, uh, providing coaching and support for parents on how to uh, teach their kids at home. And um, so some really great innovations, um, but much needed shifts in how we deliver programs as well. What's been the biggest, you know, obviously the root cause of the shift has been COVID. What's, what's been the biggest transition or the biggest reason to move? Has it been not being able to get people on the ground or access to, to staff? What's been the biggest reason for these shifts for you? Yeah, absolutely. So we had close to 500 staff spread across those 14 countries uh, in March last year, 12 months ago. Um, a significant proportion of those staff were local staff to those countries so and we worked really closely on a case-by-case basis with all of our international staff around whether or not they were happy to stay in country or be repatriated together with their dependents and so absolutely that ability to offer safe passage to and from um, different countries was one of the I guess the biggest considerations for how we continue to deliver our programs on the ground and the type of talent and and staffing, how we staffed it. And um, obviously together with the general uh, sort of profile of what COVID was doing in those particular countries. So in places like Laos, for example, they went a good six to nine months without any uh, sort of formal reported case of COVID over last year. They locked down their borders uh, pretty early on towards the end of March, April. And and it was actually that sort of complete closure of all air and land borders that uh, I think created the most level of nervousness in South, with our staff. Um, but we certainly uh, had staff who have remained there on the ground this entire 12 months and we also recently at the end of last year mobilised some more staff together with their family and children uh, over there. So it's certainly possible but we've been working through internally we've developed our own bespoke deployment decision framework and um, that's really been helpful in working through with staff um, in a very transparent way any concerns they have what the situation on the ground is what any potential risk factors they might have that might place them at a higher risk um, and sort of working through quite diligently in line with that and in line with our duty of care when you look at um, every country globally, they've all had their own COVID journey. And you, you mentioned Laos, they've been very effective there. They're also you know, very effective at keeping their borders shut and keeping the, uh, the pandemic under control. Uh, out of the 14 countries that you're responsible for, what's, what's been the most surprise, the country that surprised you the most with the way they've gone about handling this? That's a great question. I... I think every country has handled it differently, as you've outlined, and they've experienced it differently. I think what's probably been most testing for our staff and for us has been a business is those jurisdictions like Indonesia and the Philippines, where there's been significant, consistent lockdown since March last year. So all of our staff in both of those countries have been working from home. Uh, since March last year. And, and that starts to create sort of moves from an initial 
uh, emergency response type scenario to a sustained response type scenario where mental health issues and well-being start to come into play, you know, often in confined spaces uh, with the added stresses of perhaps young children and needing to homeschool children. Um, so there's some significant challenges um, in that sustained response in those kinds of countries. When you talk about sustained response, are you really looking at business as usual or treating it as a as this is our day-to-day now, this is how we're going to operate? That's right. Absolutely. We're, we're entering that phase now where we need to have a, a policy position on vaccination and on COVID testing because it's going to be part of our life going forward. And so as a business in terms of the medical insurance that we provide, if we're mobilising people, you know, what is our position on vaccination efficacy and the costs associated with that? Um, you know, some some numbers or some members of our staff have had nine COVID tests easily over the last couple of months because of the the movement that they're undertaking. And, and depending on what type of test and country you're in, there's a, there's a significant cost to that. Yeah, absolutely. So, with with that in place, and you know the deployment decision framework, and and the really tight controls, and the day to day treatment of of COVID response, how have your staff received that? How, how have they looked at that with regards to sort of duty of care and how you're looking after them and their their families? Yeah, so the feedback we've had from staff to date has been really positive, thankfully. <laughs> um, but I think you know some of the feedback we have had is that the the level of communication that we undertook, and I, th- I think that's what underpins anything, right? Is that. Um, particularly through a significant global event is how well you're engaging with your staff, how informed they feel to make decisions which are in their best interests and um, so that they're fully informed to do so and understand all of those risks so that we're also, as a business, making informed risks and meeting our um, legislative and work health and safety requirements and uh, all of the other boxes we have to tick as well when we send staff over. But over and above that, you know, we... We're sending staff into context which contexts which are uncertain and which is continuing to shift and um, you know not only the the risk of what being infected by COVID might mean for themselves or for that host community if it's transmitted by travelers, but also the um, just the general uncertainty of of living in a third country uh, and everything that's involved as well with that adaptation and you know none of those other um, risks that you might face in a country like Papua New Guinea go away just because COVID is there. If anything, they're potentially also heightened in terms of personal security, uh, movements and vehicle security, uh, all of the other um, infectious diseases and things like that. So, this is just another layer to that, if you like, um, and yeah, where communication is important. You talk about you know the the impact of COVID, but then yes, the risks that are associated with it. What's the economic downturn that you've seen across these countries? And there's a, a lot of some of those countries rely on on tourism, some rely on on different you know mining and manufacturing. Has there been a massive economic downturn in those areas that have then impacted sort of the social fabric uh, of of these countries? Mm, absolutely. So certainly across the Pacific, we've seen that. Uh, probably a heightened level of impact, particularly because a lot of those economies do rely on tourism, as you suggested. So, particularly Fiji, Vanuatu, um, you know, we are hearing about a looming fiscal crisis in those areas. We're certainly seeing uh, the increased needs um, and and the level of 
uh, I guess, seed funding or grant funding for civil society organisations, which are often best placed to respond in these kinds of scenarios. And so, certainly seeing emerging needs in those areas. And I think we may see, if not managed carefully, those needs shift towards uh, humanitarian needs, uh, which need to look at those sorts of basic uh, requirements around food and water and housing. Uh, you know, certainly Fiji got hit pretty hard with cyclone just pre-Christmas and that level of vulnerability also tends to exacerbate that already fragile economy. And so I think we will continue to see in line with the Australian government's economic partnership for recovery uh, policy, we'll continue to see investment in those areas uh, and economic recovery going forward. I think we've also, we hear about and read about in Australia as well, but certainly through the Pacific, with already increased levels of the experience, lived experience of women and children of domestic and family violence. I think we've certainly seen an increased vulnerability um, and level of domestic and family violence that has sort of stemmed from uh, COVID and the impacts of COVID in those countries as well. Is there a concern that this this sort of funding and this um, humanitarian assistance will get lost in in the need to roll out the vaccine where countries like Australia will have, will, you know, and rightly so, assist the Pacific with rolling out the vaccine. Do you think that will be at the at the detriment to these other programs? No, I don't think so. I think we have seen, certainly in the federal budget that came down last year, the first increase in total aid spending that we've uh, seen probably for the last political cycle. And so that's certainly a very encouraging uh shift. We've also seen uh, a reorientation of more funding coming into the Pacific as opposed to some other places like Southwest Asia, for example, um, which is just recognising the different needs, I think, of the Pacific and perhaps timely as well, given uh, COVID and the uh, probably larger impact on the economy that we're seeing in Fiji. So, we have seen some shifts in funding and pivoting from uh, of money from some programs towards a COVID recovery. But I think overall, we won't lose the shape of the current aid program and the imperatives that it's trying to address. Uh, and we'll see the probably a more modest uh, support for the vaccine rollout. There's what we're seeing in a lot of jurisdictions is multiple countries supporting vaccine rollout, uh, which is really encouraging. So, in the Philippines, for example, um, the Oz Chamber is supporting a vaccine rollout. The government is supporting vaccine rollout. Uh, so, there are a number of – it's almost like the race, actually, to see who can roll vaccines out <laughs> first now. <laughs> That's a good thing, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Though I think so that it, it raises the question for us and one of the things we will need to tackle pretty quickly too is vaccine equity. And so, again, in a lot of the countries that we uh, work in, what is available to our locally engaged staff versus what might be available by uh, or to our international staff, depending on their country of origin, uh, we'll soon see some people being vaccinated before others. And so, again, from a uh, corporate perspective and duty of care perspective, making sure that there's equitable access to all of those preventative measures will be important for us. That's an interesting point. And then we talk about... You know, your staff going into these countries. When when COVID first came on the scene, there was a lot of xenophobia, mm. and you know, 
we, we all looked internally a little bit. You know, countries sort of closed their borders and, and, and were a little bit suspicious about people coming into from different areas. Was there any feelings uh, that your people felt, you know, that they were in, you know, coming into a, a space like Fiji or one of the other islands where, you know, they might have at-risk personnel, you know, the healthcare is not that great, we might be bringing something in? I think for our staff and, and certainly for the business, one of the risks we've been very cognizant of is is what we bring in particularly through transit. So trying to minimise the number of stops in transit on a way through to an end point uh, is, is a real key consideration for us. There's been a number of countries whose borders have remained closed to us the entire time. Uh, we've, we've stopped operating in Kiribati uh, since September last year, but certainly between March and September, we extracted all of our international staff given the state of healthcare there and um, those borders closed very, very quickly. And thankfully, they've not seen any uh, COVID infections, but there was certainly, um, I think, significant fear that if there was an imported case of COVID there, that would um, have a, a extremely detrimental impact onto the community there. Uh, I'm The last overseas trip I did was uh, end of February last year and uh, managed to go to Vanuatu uh, just as uh, sort of COVID testing and temperature checking was happening. And so there certainly was a heightened level of xenophobia coming into the airport there and um, really a based on physical appearance, a streaming of people through one line or the other. And, you know, if you were Caucasian, you kind of got pushed through pretty quickly and seen as a low risk, you know, rightly or wrongly, wrongly. Um, So, yeah, it's certainly very interesting. And I know on the vaccine front, um, there is certainly a lot of trepidation around where vaccinations are being um, manufactured and uh, sort of how that affects whether people will um, voluntarily be vaccinated or not. Have you started to see countries in this in the, in the Pacific particularly look towards China for the vaccine, or are they still open to to exploring in the region? No, everyone seems to be open to. Um, I think fundamentally, first and foremost, from a public health perspective, people are looking at access to vaccine irrespective of of where it's manufactured. And then on a certainly from a government perspective and then on an individual level, uh, I think in certainly from our employee perspective, supporting them to make choices that are in line with um, whatever decision making criteria they may have around that is sort of part of the dialogue that we're having with them. If we look Further to our north, I guess, give the Pacific a bit of a rest. Our friends <laughs> in Indonesia, um, obviously a, a large trading partner for Australia and, and, and a key holiday destination for a lot of Australians as well. Um, I, I know that their handling of the pandemic, at least initially, was quite poor. Uh, they didn't really record any cases, and I think they were counting pneumonia cases, at least initially, as, as potential. Um, what's changed uh, there, and do you see an improvement in, in the way that they've responded and, and their public health sector has responded? So, I think we're certainly seeing greater level of communication out of government around how they're managing it, what their expectations around, certainly from a business perspective, the business community is in in keeping our workplaces closed, keeping our staff safe and what government benefits or testing processes are in place to support testing of, um, of the populace. So, we've certainly seen some of those shifts, I think, which have been encouraging. 
And their vaccine rollout? Are they trying to keep up with the Philippines? <laughs> uh, to be honest, I haven't heard too much about their vaccine rollout. <laughs> so, but, um, and I get, you know, in, in general, part of it comes down to bandwidth of the various different government departments to also manage not only a significant vaccine rollout like that, but just the fundamental um, health system strength that exists and the, the resources that government has um, available to it. If, if I compare that to the wherewithal of the Vietnamese government, for example, they were undertaking five generations of contact tracing. And so a really... Um, rigorous response to any potential identified infections and then the ability to test as well. So it's, it's interesting to see those different contrasts. Yeah, very much so. So where, where, where to for the programs that you currently have? Post-COVID, we start to open up hopefully end of 2021 um, when we're right back into the swing of things in 2022. Um, how do you see your programs running going forward? Mm, so I think... We will continue business as usual. We've certainly, we only saw sort of a drop in maybe 10% of our activity. And uh, since pivoting that, we've, we've really recouped that. So for us, it's it's continuing to, continuing on that trajectory, but being cognizant of whatever curveballs might be thrown in the uncertain environment that is COVID and being shift on. We did start remobilising staff and their dependents. I think I mentioned earlier, a few months ago, that takes sort of three to four months of planning to get the appropriate approvals in place mm-hmm. and uh, they've all mobilised safely and so continuing to, as necessary, mobilise staff. But what all of this has also thrown up is how talented our local staff are and how this really creates an opportunity for stronger localization, stronger regionalization agendas from a from a people and talent perspective. And I think we're certainly, whilst we're able to mobilize some people out of Australia, we are starting to see constraints around mobilizing individuals and and teams and families out of the US and out of the UK with different variant strains coming. So it is going to put greater pressure on where we source our talent from and so really create those opportunities, which is, I guess, you know, looking at that perfect storm scenario um, where there are economic challenges in some of these countries, providing greater employment opportunities for local staff is what is going to also contribute to making a difference. And so looking at how we can increase the employment of, of staff, local staff in those countries, how we can support their professional development, how we can mentor and coach them with other technical experts will be really important too. So that's certainly a key priority for us over the coming 12 to 24 months. And I think it will continue to be so in the future. COVID certainly not going away in, in five years even. It's going to be part, part of life going forward. And uh, so I think not only does it reshape that opportunity for locally engaged staff, but if I also think about the challenges around deploying staff with uh, sort of pre-existing medical conditions who sort of fall into that high-risk category and who may choose not to go or we may choose that uh, that risk is too high for us to bear and that we can't provide the right level of uh, evacuate, medical evacuation uh, you know, with the constraints on commercial flights, et cetera. That provides opportunity for younger career professionals or those in in other type of professions to make that uh, leap into international development as well. So, you know, I think there's some positives to come from that on what 
the talent and what the people side of international development could look like going forward. You know, challenges notwithstanding, it's it's there's a lot of opportunity in international development still, and we're still doing a lot of exciting work and still achieving a lot of great outcomes, which aligns with our purpose, certainly um, from a Tetra international development perspective, where we want to contribute to uh, people, communities and the planet to thrive. So thanks for having me along. Uh, My pleasure. Thanks very much, Amy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Navigate, the world travel protection podcast that steers you in the right direction, helping you explore the world safely. For more information on how we protect millions of global travellers each year, visit worldtravelprotection.com or follow us on LinkedIn. We'd love to connect. Finally, if you've enjoyed this episode and you want to hear more from my experts, be sure to hit subscribe or follow or please leave us a review. Until next time, keep travelling and stay safe.